the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We uh, continue to try to bring you, uh, at minimum, anecdotal stories to buttress the overwhelming data and evidence about the state of K-12 through education as so many parents are becoming uh, awakened to the state of their kids' schools and who just who exactly is in charge and perhaps even some questioning if they can't get their kids back to school, maybe uh, they shouldn't want their kids back into school in the first place, taking a hard look that maybe they hadn't taken uh, prior to this disruption in their kids' education, such as it is. And so uh, the latest example comes again from California. La Mesa Spring Valley School Board meeting. Voting, here we are a year later, year later from the outset and the school closures. La Mesa Spring Valley School Board voting meeting, a Zoom meeting, on whether or not to reopen their schools. And vice president of the school board, Sharda Bell Fontenot, who describes herself as a black feminista, quote-unquote, suggesting that the, even having the conversation was inappropriate, an example of white privilege, and she won't be party to it. And I know that what we're doing is wrong. So how are we forcing That seems like a very white supremacist ideology to force people to comply with, you know, and conform. <laughs> Just letting you know. Privilege. Check it, guys. So I don't want to be a part of forcing anybody to do anything they don't want to do. That's what slavery is. I'm not going to be a part of it. Like nobody even knows, none of you guys even know what we're talking about right now. This seems like a mess. We should not be voting on this tonight. (laughs) You guys don't have all the information that you need. You guys are just saying what you're speaking from your heart and that's fine. Uh, And the superintendent took issue with uh, her characterizing other fellow board members as not knowing about what, not knowing what they're talking about and so on and so forth. And uh, the school board president chimed in to try to move this along. You know, you have that conversation offline with the superintendent, and that generated this. I think this should be a that should be a private conversation between. Well, it doesn't need to be private. None of this needs to be private. Racism doesn't need to be private, Becky. Racism doesn't need to be private, Becky, and that's what reopening schools is an indicia of racism. For more on this, the state of education pre-K through post-secondary. Pleased to be joined again by Anthony Esselin, professor and writer-in-residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, author of The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, and Sex and the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind. Tony, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, maybe Ms. Belfontno has accidentally lurched into an insight. Uh, she's not supporting, supportive of forcing anybody to do anything. Uh, maybe we should start, uh, as you sort of suggest in a recent piece for, at amgreatness.com, maybe we should start by not forcing children to go to school until uh, age 18 uh, straight away. Yeah, you know what? Um, uh, we, didn't, we didn't used to have compulsory schooling, right? Um, and uh, fellow 
he was secular, I believe. I don't think he was religious, but a fellow named John Taylor Gatto um, <clears throat> wrote uh, for years about uh, the um, state of literacy in New York uh, around 1800 or 1790, so you know near the founding of this country, which was and the state of literacy was basically universal. If you, unless you were feeble-minded, if you were an adult in New York, you could read, and being able to read then meant that you were able to read the texts that were the only texts around to read. So you could read uh, the newspapers of the time, the Federalist Papers, um, Pilgrim's Progress, the King James Bible, um, and so forth. Uh, texts that a lot of our college students now would find uh, rather challenging, rather difficult. Um, so uh, he, he had said uh, a long time ago, uh, the uh, move to make schooling compulsory, um, beginning in Massachusetts in the mid 1800s, um, was a move towards uh, uh, turning America towards the ideal of Prussia, uh, a centrally organized state with um, control of education, uh, increasing control of education from farther and farther away from the people who are meant to suffer the education. You know, I began to think. What good does it exactly do to force young people to be in a school until they're 18 years old? Um, what are they learning there? What are they not learning because they're there? Um, and we just take for granted, well, of course, yeah, everybody should be in school. Really? Um, so I've been finding out about the lives of very ordinary people uh, before compulsory schooling through age 18 or age 16 was uh, basically universal across the country. People let's, did a lot of things. Yeah, Tony, let's hold it right there. And when we come back, I want to talk about uh, not only your daughter's choir, but also Oliver Ditson and, and some of the folks uh, that uh, accomplished a great deal without uh, being required to go to school until age 18. More with uh, Tony Esselin right up The more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Anthony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts and author of The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, as well as Sex and the Unreal City, The Demolition of the Western Mind Before the Break talking about uh, this notion of compulsory education. And as we're reexamining so much with respect to education, maybe the compulsory nature of K through 12 should be reexamined. And uh, Tony, I'll let you pick it up from there. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about Oliver Ditson as yet another example of uh, uh, informal, I guess, education, uh, what that can produce. Yeah, well, um, my daughter sang in a, a self-isolation choir and a choir of people singing contributing their voices from all over the world, um, singing uh, an oratorio by Mendelssohn, the Elijah. And uh, so I'm looking at the text that she's singing from. It was produced around 1850 by the Oliver Ditson Company. And I'm looking at the ads in uh, uh, the inside pages. Holy cow. Um, we're talking about hundreds of books, really sophisticated books, being marketed to ordinary Americans. So I... I did a little bit of a search for uh, Mr. Ditson, the owner of the company. But I find out um, 
that he uh, graduated from grammar school at age 11, which was, you know, a common thing, and he went straight into business. He, he, became, uh, uh, he, he began to work for a man who ran a bookstore and music store. And by age 22, he's a full partner in this man's business. Um, by age 22. And uh, by the time he's uh, in his 40s, he buys out his partner. The partner goes separate ways. They, they begin to sell musical instruments and to repair them, while Ditson focuses mainly on publication. And he becomes one of the foremost publishers of music in America in the 19th century. And that's a big deal. Um, the sheet music is the way, you know, uh, it's the way you're going to experience music is if you hear somebody play it or you play it yourself. There are no tape recorders or right. things like that. Um, and the, the thing about uh, Ditson's story is not, is, is not that it was remarkable. It's that it wasn't remarkable. That is, lots of people did this sort of thing, okay? Um, and then I asked myself, well, well, you know, if it was done then, why can't it be, not be done now, right? And people will say, well, you know, it's because there's so much more to learn. And I said, really? Is that really true? Um, have you actually taken a look at uh, uh, books that were written for mechanics, uh, machinists in 1910, 1900? You're telling me um, that these people um, who uh, very rarely had any higher education at all, um, that these people uh, then um, could only do simple things, but things are they're so much more complicated now you have to, you have to go to college. I, I don't see that. Um, and if I don't see it with regard to machinists, I surely don't see it with regard to uh, most everybody else. Well, and this is and and the the pushback you would uh, you would receive, of course, as well, you know, but we have child labor laws now, Tony, and and we don't want children to be exploited. And unfortunately, not everybody has a a two parent family that uh, is uh, is providing the mentorship that you're providing for your daughter and. Or, or and now everybody has the opportunity that Oliver Ditson had, and so on and so forth. And this is where we need uh, more of a paternalist society to make sure that no child is left behind. Well, uh, the funny thing is uh, that the schools themselves, um, as as we know, the schools themselves have been uh, playing the roles of villains in this story since the seventies. Anyway, that is. The schools confirm um, the the notion that you don't need a family, all right? Um, you don't need a father in the home. Schools have been preaching that for forty years now. Uh, so, uh, and schools have been overriding the wishes of the parents themselves uh, in exposing children to, you know, perversity. Uh, not just the ordinary run of sexual sin, but the perverse order of it too. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all uh, wonderful for, for school people to complain. Yeah, you know, uh, some of these kids, they don't, they don't have real families. Well, what the heck has the schools been doing? Um, um, but, but preaching just those things that would destroy families. Um, and then, well, and the, and the other thing that you point up, too, is it, you know, just breaking this mindset, um, not just uh, getting beyond the compulsory education through high school, to colleges and the idea that it's an it's it's a indisputable good trying to to provide scholarships for people that don't have the means to go to college, and yeah. um, 
Maybe that's not an industry. Yeah, no, what we need, what we need very much, and I say this as a college professor, I understand. I've been in, <clears throat> I've been in higher education since I was a freshman in college. I've never been apart from it. I've observed it close up. Um, I believe that it functions as a cartel or a monopoly. Um, it has established itself as the gatekeeper uh, for access to all kinds of uh, good things, for which it itself contributes nothing or very little. Right? Uh, it, it's as if you happen to own the only bridge across a river. Um, and this was actually omitted by the editors of the piece that I wrote for American Greatness. I don't know why they omitted it. Um, you own the only you own the bridge across the river, and you and people have to cross that bridge, uh, and you you've got it. You've got control there. It's an artificial bottleneck, and then you charge people through the nose for going across that bridge. The colleges have established themselves as the turnpike keeper or the gatekeeper. Um, but there's no reason for it. There's no reason why you have to go to college. <laughs> what are you learning there in order to do almost any of the jobs that are out there in in the United States right now? College education does not actually uh, contribute anything towards your ha- having that job, right? College education is, is for entry into the intellectual life. It's not for everybody. Um, but... Uh, uh, that's not why people are going to college. People are going to college in order to get the sheepskin so that they can uh, provide it to an employer and, 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 and get a job from it. Uh, I don't know whether it's, it actually does that, but even if it did that, it would be illegitimate. Um, it would be... Uh, that's the toll at the bridge. Uh, it, the, yeah. the bridge to employment yeah. is that sheepskin. Right. That's against Catholic social teaching, Okay. When we come back with Tony Esselin, I want to get uh, his take on what uh, conservatives should do with respect to higher education. More with Tony right after this. Listen to podcasts of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Magdalen College writer and resident Anthony Esselin about higher education. And um, Tony, for conservatives, what is the most productive path when it comes to trying to improve options for conservatives interested in preserving Western civilization and higher education and thoughtful intellectual pursuits? Well, uh, I think we absolutely need higher education. Okay, there are, there are things that you can't do without it. Uh, So I'm totally in favor of multiplying the number of places like Magdalen College, where I teach, or or Hillsdale College, right? Mm -hmm. Um, These are specifically places for uh, entry into the intellectual life on a rather high level. Um, They're not training grounds uh, for for jobs that you will get later, okay? Um, They're kind of what liberal arts colleges always were. They, they, they're modeled after what John Henry Newman has in his mind in his work, The Idea of a University. Um, we should be infiltrating. We, I mean, you've got to make the best of a bad situation. So we should be, of course, having uh, a greater presence in 
such places as are out there, the Harvards of the world, and even state colleges. But what really needs to happen, okay, for, for all kinds of reasons, is to break that, what I, what I call the higher education employment nexus. That's got to be broken because that's unjust, right? There, um, that you should be required to have a college degree for entry into almost any job, right, in, in the country. I mean, there are really very few jobs that ought to require that college degree. Um, that, that connection has, that, that is primed to be smashed. It saves a lot of people, tremendous amount of money and a lot of time, and it would get the colleges perhaps back to doing what higher education ought to do, uh, rather than just um, serving as a four-year, an extremely expensive four-year spa um, and uh, where, where young people take worthless classes, um, and sometimes worse than worthless, downright poisonous, downright, downright harmful. Um, this, this is all uh, to, to the good of people of the lower middle class, the working class, and, and the underclass generally, right? Um, and uh, some people say, well, you know, why don't we just give more money to the colleges so they can have more scholarships for these people. And so that, you know, that's like giving money to the racketeers. Um, they already have been running a racket. The, uh, the, the thing to do is to smash the racket um, and give people of poorer means ways of attaining jobs that avoid um, the turnpike. He is Anthony Esselin, professor and writer in residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts, author of The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord, and Sex and the Unreal, uh, Unreal City, that is, The Demolition of the Western Mind. Tony, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Take care. This is The Dan Proft Show.